afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us for this afternoon session titled To Dream the Impossible Dream, Acute Pain Management for Patients on Buprenorphine. This afternoon's faculty are Maria Foy of Abington Memorial Hospital and Tanya Yuritsky of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. So ladies, I will turn it over to you. Thanks. Thank you, everybody. If you're here for the prior session, I'm glad we didn't scare you away. If you weren't, welcome. Um, I am going to kick this off um, with a brief introduction to buprenorphine and some of its properties. And Maria is going to walk us through some more of the case portion of this uh, session as well. Um, so again, I have nothing to disclose. And Maria is a speaker for AstraZeneca. Um, today, we hope to accomplish a few things. So we're going to describe the pharmacokinetic properties of buprenorphine for both pain and for substance use disorder treatment. We're going to differentiate buprenorphine for its role in pain from its role in substance use disorder. And then hopefully you'll be able to recommend some strategies to treat acute pain in patients who are on buprenorphine. I don't know about you, but since you're sitting here, maybe you have. We're seeing more and more and more people coming in on buprenorphine, and I'm getting more and more in phone calls on, uh-oh, we don't know how to manage their pain, or pain services recommending this, and is that right? Um, so it's, it's going to become more and more of a problem, and I think that we're still learning a lot about this drug and about its management in acute pain. But we know more now than we did even even six months ago, so it's happening quickly. So we have three scenarios about the same patient um, that Maria is going to walk us through, but I just want to introduce them so you can kind of think on them a little while I talk about the drug. So we have HG, and HG is going to be admitted for a scheduled mastectomy. She has a history of opioid addiction, is managed on buprenorphine naloxone, and has been clean for five years. So the surgical team wants to know how do we treat her pain postoperatively because She's on this buprenorphine naloxone. It's so like, what do we do with the buprenorphine naloxone? Do we stop it? Do we continue it? What do we do? I'm glad that they actually want a plan, and they're thinking about this, so this is really good. Uh, so then, unfortunately for HG, she is in a car accident, and she's admitted with a broken femur and a few broken ribs. She has a history, again, of opioid addiction. She's still managed on her buprenorphine naloxone, got through her surgery okay. Um, and unfortunately now, she's in severe pain, and they want to know how to manage her pain and what to do again with her buprenorphine naloxone. So this is different than the previous scenario, right? Because this is an emergent situation where before we had the grace of time to think a little bit about how do we proceed. And then this final scenario is lucky for HG now. She's cancer-free, her ribs are fine, um, and she is maintained still on her buprenorphine naloxone. And um, she's pretty young, so her biological clock is ticking. And she's happy to report that she is now pregnant, um, which is great news. And she herself is concerned that her treatment of buprenorphine naloxone will be harmful for her baby. So the question is, how do we manage her pain during and after delivery? So these three different scenarios are what we're going to cover today uh, in more detail. So to give us the background on this pharmacology, um, as you may know, buprenorphine is FDA approved for the treatment of substance use um, as well as for moderate to severe pain. For substance use, it's approved in the sublingual form. And for pain, there's a buccal form, there are transdermal patches, and there is parenteral as well. So the pharmacokinetics of buprenorphine is that it's a partial agonist at the mu receptor and an inverse agonist at the kappa receptor. It has high affinity and binding capacity for the mu receptor. So uh, while it is only a partial agonist, it is not a full agonist, it does really stick to that receptor. 
um, with lower intrinsic activity. So a full agonist would have more intrinsic activity, create more activity at that receptor. This has what we call a ceiling effect, meaning that you can only get so much when you increase the dose, and eventually you kind of cap out on your efficacy um, because it, it doesn't activate that receptor fully. The half-life is 24 to 42 hours. The drug is uh, very lipophilic, so it hangs around for a long time. Um, that's in the non-IV form. In the IV form, it's shorter than that. The analgesic half-life is not the same as the elimination half-life because it does hang around so long. So you'll see the dosing more like every six hours. Um, it does slowly dissociate from receptors, and it has that extended uh, activity. And because it's hanging around for so long, it's really beneficial for substance use disorder because you don't have to dose it multiple times a day. People take things once a day, and you can have it hang around for a long time and, and treat those symptoms um, and use it for use in maintenance. Um, there are drug interactions, so primarily the cytochrome 50P453A4, um, and it does have an active metabolite, norbuprenorphine. So these, this is just a summary of its pharmacokinetic parameters because everybody learns differently, so sometimes we need different ways to see things. You can see that has, its onset of action is pretty quick within a half an hour, pretty similar to like methadone. Um, that's usually about the onset for that. Last, the efficacy lasts about six hours. Um, you want to be careful in hepatic function if there's mild or moderate dysfunction. Um, and for older adults, as with any medication in an older adult, excuse me, we want to monitor closely. Um, remember that buprenorphine is a potent analgesic. It can produce effective analgesia with only 5 to 10% of the receptors actually occupied. So this is when it gets tricky because you, some people say stop your buprenorphine and, you know, dose your pain medication and then start restart the buprenorphine when your acute pain is over. Other people say, well, it's only occupying 5 to 10% of the receptors, so you can give more drug and you can override that and hit the other receptors that aren't occupied. So this is why there's a lot of controversy because it, it has... Um, kind of a unique way in which it acts. Even though it has a short half-life, it has that long duration of action. Um, and so since the duration of action is also determined by the receptor affinity, that means um, that it lasts longer than what the half-life actually is, as I explained before. So it looks like it would only last a few hours, but it hangs around and lasts longer. Um, Okay, so it is effective for pain control regardless of in, of someone has substance use history or not. Um, buprenorphine may exhibit a hypoalgesic effect. So a lot of times we think with opioids, hyperalgesia, right? And we see the metabolites build up and people become toxic on these things. But buprenorphine does not have that effect. So you may get reductions in pain when patients are transitioned from high-dose opioids to buprenorphine because it's not associated with that hyperalgesia. Um, most of the adverse effects are seen either at very high doses or at very low doses, and patients might be more likely to stop treatment at those intervals um, of dosing. So we have to be very flexible with patients, regardless of our indication, to try and figure out what dose is most effective. Um, generally, for pain, the lower doses are used, and for substance use disorder, the higher doses are used, kind of like with methadone as well. Um, and then here um, we have stated the transdermal patch is okay to continue perioperatively. It is. You just have to know that you're going to have to dose above and beyond that, so the patient will need higher doses of opioids. The transdermal patch is technically low dose, so you should be able to override and hit those other receptors that buprenorphine isn't sitting on. So um, when you're looking at the clinical use of buprenorphine naloxone in opioid addiction, hang on one second, over here or over here, um, in opioid addiction with chronic pain, without chronic pain, um, buprenorphine naloxone can be used as maintenance for opioid therapy. Um, for chronic pain, 
on patients on high-dose opioids. We're still trying to figure that out. Is, you know, can we use buprenorphine in these folks? Probably buprenorphine naloxone is challenging because it's not indicated for pain, right? So getting that drug for that patient may be hard because the insurance doesn't want to pay for it. So you're going to have a little bit of a tricky time getting that without the indication. Um, and then um, for patients who are dependent on opiates who have coexisting chronic pain, this is probably a good population to think about buprenorphine in um, because the higher dose makes it trickier. But if you're dealing with kind of standard lower doses, this is probably a better uh, target group. And maybe we'll have less hyperalgesia. So some misconceptions about buprenorphine. Okay, sorry. Um, one, the maintenance opioid agonist provides analgesia. So has anyone... So I work in a acute care hospital, and I'll hear someone say to me, they go through surgery, someone is on methadone or someone's on buprenorphine, um, and they'll, they'll think that that drug can be their analgesic for a post-op period. And while it's an opioid, <laughs> they just had surgery. So we know they need more drug than that, right? Um, and possibly a different drug as well. So that's not true. So we want to make sure that people are educated about the need for additional analgesia, even though someone's on a baseline, this baseline treatment. Um, another common misconception is that the use of opiates for analgesia may result in relapse. So while that may be true, untreated pain may also result in relapse. So we need to be very careful about that. Um, and I think the most important thing is remembering, as you've probably heard at this conference all week long, that interdisciplinary team approach in these folks in kind of all hands on deck, making sure that we have their psychological treatment addressed, making sure that we have a real good plan for their opioids. We're doing functional assessments. People are more functional, not less functional when we're giving them the opioids. We're tapering them off as soon as we can and should um, postoperatively is also really important. So I spend time educating about, yes, I agree opioids may be a risk, but also not treating their pain is a pretty big risk. If we can treat them with things that are non-opioids, absolutely. But you know, if you just had a giant X-lap, you probably need some opioids. So um, I think there's a lot of education to be done there. Another common misconception is that the additive effects of opioid analgesics, as in addition to whatever they're on for maintenance, either buprenorphine or methadone, um, is going to result in respiratory depression and CNS depression. While that may be possible, um, usually these folks have a much higher tolerance for opioids and tend to be able to tolerate them pretty well. And so where we get into trouble is when we undertreat their pain, at least this is what I see, we undertreat their pain, they become extraordinarily anxious and nauseous, and we give them lorazepam. And now they're at increased risk for respiratory depression. So adequately treated pain in the setting of maintenance opioid agonist therapy is actually not a higher risk for respiratory depression if we're doing it safely and correctly. Um, and then reports of uncontrolled pain may be uh, manipulation or drug-seeking behavior. And that's true, right? It's possible that someone saying my pain's not controlled in the history of addiction may be looking for more drugs. Is it that they're actually drug-seeking because they have pain or because they're seeking it for other reasons? This is where our good assessments are really, really important because we may be under-treating their pain because they have such a high tolerance. So our functional assessments are really critical here in trying to tease this out. Um, so when we get to dosing for pain for buprenorphine, the sublingual film is dosed typically every six to eight hours between four to 16 milligrams a day. Um, typically because it's not a full mu, mu agonist, we see less respiratory depression. Go ahead. Yes, I noticed that earlier and I couldn't fix that. Obviously it was too late. So I did notice that when I was going through my slides. So I will 
formally apologize for that. We will take that off. Um, I can't do that right this second, but I'll do that as soon as I'm done. Um, so thank you for that. We don't need an X number to prescribe. Um, and I was planning on just not saying it. So thank you for calling me out. <laughs> um, and then um, there is not an FD indication, so we may have some issues with that. The um, buccal film is dose dependent on their prior exposure to therapy. So you can see the dosing listed out there for you. Um, and that can be referenced in any drug dosing um, program. And then for the patch, there's also specific dosing for that. Remember that in folks who are non-opiate naive, people who are on more than 80 milligrams of oral daily morphine equivalents a day may not be appropriate for this therapy because of that sealing effect and the inability to titrate um, higher than that if they have higher opioid needs. I think a lot about the palliative care population and folks like that who we usually need higher doses in or we may want to go to higher doses in and we would not be able to in these folks. So we are not able to use this as effectively there. Um, other things to think about are drug interactions. So I mentioned earlier the cytochrome P453A4. Um, Lots of drug interactions there. Drugs you don't use very much, like MAOIs and thalidomides, so not as relevant as those that you do that affect the metabolism. Um, things like fluconazole, again, cytochrome P453A4 inhibitors, things like clarithromycin, um, but there's also um, other drugs like the antiretrovirals, and then um, maybe even more importantly are things that are inducers. So the other side of the slide is the decreased opioid effect. So those are inducers, right? So if someone's on carbamazepine and also on buprenorphine, carbamazepine is increasing the rate at which buprenorphine is, is being taken out of the body. So sometimes we go up on the buprenorphine to get the right dose and we get a better effect, and that's great until someone stops their carbamazepine. And then what happens? Now, all of a sudden, the buprenorphine levels are higher in this person's body. They're not being eliminated as quickly, and we end up with too much buprenorphine. And so that's, that's the tricky part. So we just want to be careful um, with the inducers and, and thinking about stopping, actually, those agents. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to more of our case-based stuff um, for Maria to talk about acute pain and buprenorphine and walk through some of the scenarios. There's a question real quick. Yeah. You do not for pain, for pain, correct. So you have to write that on the prescription. So just like for methadone, for severe refractory intractable pain is the best way to do that. And you will probably still have insurance hiccups along the way there because it's not really indicated. So that's where it gets a little tricky. Yeah, you might have to do a dance <laughs> to get it through, and they still may not cover it. Okay. All right, thank you. Marie is going to take it from here. So we're running into these situations much more, right? So many more people are coming into our institutions on buprenorphine for either pain or for substance use disorder that we need to figure out how to deal with their pain, as Tanya would say. There's not a lot of good literature on this. I'm sure hopefully there'll be more coming up. And there is some conflicting study results. Some say that buprenorphine is a weak analgesic. Some studies and some consensus papers say that it's 25 to 100 times more of an analgesic than morphine. There's not a lot of randomized trials on using buprenorphine and having somebody in acute pain. So we don't have a lot of information and actual evidence out there on what to do, but we do have some consensus statements from the American Pain Society, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, and the American um, Society of Anesthesiologists, where they say that you need to 
plan appropriately, especially when you're doing an elective surgery. There's recommendations for how to stop buprenorphine, who to stop it on, and how to manage that interim until you get the patient to surgery. Do the perioperative education, as always. Patient expectations and patient buy-in is so important. Using assessment tools and making sure that we're using, especially pre-op, interop, using some multimodal therapy. Right, so ERAS, I'm sure many of you have heard of ERAS um, in our surgeries where we're using that and looking at opioid tolerant patients and what could we do to decrease their opioid requirements post-op using maybe some ketamine intra-op, using a cocktail pre-op of acetaminophen, an NSAID, and a gabapentinoid. So a lot of those things then may make, and using some regional anesthetic techniques or another way, that you can make their post-op opioid requirement lessened, and which is a good thing in somebody on buprenorphine. There's a lot of challenges, as we talked about, because of that, that affinity to that receptor and how we need to overcome that in order to provide some pain management, especially in those patients on, on um, medication-assisted therapy because those doses are higher. So those are the patients that really are much harder to... Uh, to control that acute pain versus somebody that may be on a buprenorphine patch. Um, we need a high dose mu opioid receptor to overcome, uh, opioid, to overcome or to treat that acute pain. So I usually would recommend fentanyl in those patients because it's highly lipophilic and it has a very good affinity. Now in our institution, fentanyl is restricted. So hydromorphone could be the second choice. It has, also has a good affinity for the receptor. So it depends on where you're at and how you're able to use your fentanyl on your floors. Um, naloxone, a normal dose of naloxone will not reverse buprenorphine. I believe that you need about two milligrams of naloxone to be able to re reverse a buprenorphine overdose. And in patients that you may want to stop pre-op, the buprenorphine for medication-assisted therapy, is that going to exacerbate a relapse? because they will recommend that you're using short-acting opioids in these patients. But if you have somebody that can be substance, you know, may relapse on that, that's somebody you may not want to stop and may try to do something else. I talked a little bit about formulations on how some are stronger than others. So that's something to take into consideration when you're evaluating your patient. You're looking at your clinical situation. Is it for pain? Is it for substance use disorder? Is this an elective procedure? Is it emergent? And is the pain severe that you may need to use high-dose opioids? Like I said, regional anesthesia is a recommendation. And this is something you have to think about. Somebody coming into your institution, buprenorphine is abused, right? Even suboxone, there's reports of suboxone being abused because the buprenorphine has a higher affinity to the receptor than the naloxone. So when you take the drug sublingually, you're not really getting absorption of that naloxone. You inject it, you do, but that naloxone might only last for 40 minutes and then your buprenorphine may go back onto that receptor or you know, actually activate more receptors than the naloxone. So that's something you gotta think about. Somebody coming into your institution and they're not getting great pain control and they may be a risk for substance use disorder. Are they using buprenorphine on the outside? And if that's the case, once the buprenorphine gets out of their system, you really have to monitor those patients. Those are where the overdoses can occur. So we're gonna talk about our patient now. She's coming in for her mastectomy. She's on her buprenorphine. What ways can we manage her pain? And does the buprenorphine for substance use disorder change how you manage the patient? 
So this patient's five years out. That doesn't mean that she can't relapse, but she's five years out. So depending on what you feel her risk is right at this moment, how bad was her substance use disorder in the past, it may change the way you manage the patient. So one way, it's not highly studied, but there is a few case reports, and down at Thomas Jefferson University, we have an acute pain management doctor that uses a lot of buprenorphine. And this is something that he may do, where you're going to actually continue the suboxone, the buprenorphine naloxone, or the buprenorphine alone, and then use additional buprenorphine PRN. Most of the substance use disorder patients are taking it once a day, right? So that can be divided out multiple times a day to get better analgesia versus just stopping those cravings. And then you use that low-dose buprenorphine, and it'll work for that additional pain control that you may need for the acute pain. This has a little bit more investigation needed on it, but it's an interesting thought, right? And so what on our patient, the, um, like we said, we have a ceiling effect with the buprenorphine naloxone. They did do some case reports that this worked out pretty well. And so it could be an option for somebody that you're worried about relapse. So what we did for this patient, she takes naloxone 16 for once a day. We figured there's going to be increased pain post-op, so we increased that a little bit. We divided it out four times a day, three times a day, I'm sorry, where we did eight milligrams, two milligrams sublingual every eight hours scheduled. And then for breakthrough, we used two milligrams of the buprenorphine every four hours as needed. She had pretty good pain control the first two days post-op. She used a total of 32 milligrams of buprenorphine naloxone, and then she was able to be tapered down based on her pain control following the surgery with that regimen. So that is not really out there in a lot of guidelines, but it is something that maybe we should look, be looking into. There's um, a lot of studies going on on, on continuing the naloxone versus stopping the naloxone before surgery. And would the analgesic effect of the, the buprenorphine naloxone really help a bit on the opioid consumption? More about that to follow, I'm sure. So do we convert to traditional opioid therapy? Right? So that's when you're going to have an elective surgery, and you're going to know ahead of time, at least five days ahead of time, what to do with these patients and how to stop this. You're going to need to bridge them with opioid therapy and utilize short-acting opioids PRN while that buprenorphine leads the system. Okay? This is where we have concern with our substance use patients because this is where relapse can occur. So, and also you have to be cautioned if you're using methadone, switching from buprenorphine naloxone to methadone in the conversion phase, methadone and buprenorphine have unique pharmacokinetics, right? So, you know, that could be an issue where there may be a point where you have too much of either. So that you have to be a little bit more cautious if that's what you're going to be using. So option two, she's going to go in for her mexectomy. We stopped her buprenorphine two weeks before the surgery. We bridged her with some long-acting and short-acting opioids because she was using it for the substance use disorder. So we tried to, to decrease those cravings as much as possible. We used a PCA. You can use with or without a continuous, depending on what she was using pre-op. Use fentanyl, use hydromorphone if possible. And higher doses of opioids are going to be needed. So initially, when we started seeing this coming into our institution, everybody who was on a butrans patch was, us, was a drug seeker because the normal doses just didn't work for them. So it was a lot of education. We also saw fentanyl patches going on patients instead of a butrans patch. 
because we weren't as familiar. I think now with it out there more, I don't hopefully that our institutions know a little bit more about this drug, but it is, you really have to be careful. So now she's in her car accident. She has a broken femur. She wants to continue her buprenorphine therapy because she, when we stopped it, she had really crappy pain control after her mastectomy. So now she wants to continue it because she didn't, it didn't work out so well the first time. Let's see how this works out. So in our substance use disorder, the mental anguish that you may give someone that is maintained on these drugs for years, five years, can be difficult to overcome, and they may not want to stop their therapy. So we talked about, you know, dividing those doses up. We talked about putting them in the ICU, possibly. That's not going to go really well in my world because they don't want to just take a patient for pain control and monitoring in our ICU because our ICUs are usually filled. So that's something that could be um, difficult to accomplish. And we want to may consider continuing it on procedures where you may not need so much opioid or we're going to be using regional techniques to control pain. Or it's mild pain post-op. You know, you may not need to stop it in those situations because you may be able to use adjunctive medications to control the rest of their pain. And by dividing up the buprenorphine, we may give them enough analgesia in those mild, those um, uncomplicated minor surgeries. And as I said, those patients with the risk of relapse. Option three, she has a history. This is our same patient. She's going to continue her home dose. They used a TAP block, a transabdominal trans plexus block, intraoperatory to try to help with pain control post-op. She used a fentanyl PCA with good results. We added on some acetaminophen around the clock, one gram Q8. I use the same regimen that Tanya uses. And we also have an option of ketamine in my institution, not dexmedetomidine, but in many institutions, we are starting to see dexmedetomidine used a little bit more for pain. So if the pain remains uncontrolled, we can consider using those agents on top of it. So there's not, like I said, a lot of evidence out there about using, continuing the buprenorphine naloxone. Only one randomized trial um, in 2009 where they did have good analgesia and good analgesic effects by continuing the buprenorphine. The rest are more case studies, but most of the studies did show that the patients were okay with their pain control by continuing the buprenorphine naloxone. So this I'm going to come down for because it's a little complicated. But this, what if our patient wasn't able to stop her, wasn't able to continue her buprenorphine naloxone? It's an emergent surgery. What do we do now, right? What do we do once the buprenorphine is coming out of their system? That's something that we really need to be aware of, and that's something where maybe ICU may be indicated, because if it's going to be a long, drawn-out, painful condition, then you're going to need to monitor those patients, because at some point, that suboxone is going to come out of their system, and then they may be overdosed. So here, if we have urgent surgery, here, here, um, you consider it a monitored setting. If it's just smile pain, like I talked about, you're not going to need very much, and you may be able to just continue it and use some adjunctive medications. However, for moderate to severe pain, if we anticipate that, and they're taking the buprenorphine, you need to monitor them if we need to immediately stop it. So if we stop it, we have to utilize our PCAs for pain. We have to consider a pain consult because, you know, pain management may have a little bit more expertise in this area and using some adjunctive agents. But the problem is 
that if they're on these medications and on these opioids more than, say, two or three days post-op, or the patient comes in and we don't know they're using their buprenorphine on the outside, then we will have an overdose situation as that gets out of their system. And I'm not sure how many practitioners really know that unless they're pain trained. I really don't know if they know the full ability of what, in the, of what buprenorphine naloxone will do, especially in those high doses. This is, I went through this already. This is for the scheduled surgery and how you can uh, manage those patients with, with buprenorphine. When do you restart buprenorphine? Do you restart buprenorphine immediately after they've been on their fentanyl PCA? What happens if you start buprenorphine in someone who is on opioids? Withdrawal, right? So you're going to precipitate withdrawal in that patient. So many um, people will actually just stop the opioid, wait 24 hours. When you see those mild withdrawal symptoms, lacrimation, you know, maybe a little bit of diarrhea, maybe some sweating, before they go into full-blown withdrawal, that's when you would start your buprenorphine up again. And when you do start it up again, you would want to reinduce the patient. So you're not going to put them on 16-4 right off the bat. You may want to do it as you induce buprenorphine in the first place by doing 8 milligrams max the first day, 16 milligrams max the second day, and so on. How about in pregnancy? Our patient, she's pregnant now, and she wants to get off her buprenorphine naloxone. Now she's worried about the baby. Okay, she's worried about the baby at this point. And really, pregnant patients often are pretty motivated at getting off opioids. So I have a little question for you, a soft topic. But if someone comes in and into your institution and you don't have a license to de detox, can you admit that patient in for withdrawal management? Because we don't have a license, right? This came up at our institution, and that's why we developed methadone guidelines, because of this. So... I'm sorry? You, well, you cannot, in a detox, you cannot detox a patient in the hospital. So if our pregnant patient just wants to get off her opioids and you're detoxing her, my institution, if she wasn't pregnant, we wouldn't be able to do that. But pregnancy in our, in our state, and I'm not sure if it's variable, is a medical condition. So we were allowed to bring her in, in our institution, and detox her inpatient versus going to a facility or something like that. But if someone came in with an overdose, I can't, I can't detox that patient in my institution. So that's just a little bit of a tidbit. But if someone, I think it's important to clarify, if someone does come in for like sepsis, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and you need to detox them, you are allowed to do a rapid detox, which is, you know, there's literature around how to do that over five days, and, and you can actually do that even longer if you have a protocol supporting that, which we've created at our hospital. Um, so if there is a real medical condition, you absolutely can admit them and do a, a rapid detox for them, but you can't do, a, unless you're a detox center, you can't admit somebody for detox. That's correct. So Tanya's right. What we usually do is try to just prevent the withdrawal. We're not actually in my institution. We don't actually detox them. We give them, if they agree to go to a facility afterwards, we'll put them on some methadone, put them on some PRN methadone for cravings. We're going to be looking at buprenorphine now in our institution because it is a lot safer. And I also discovered in my institution in the suburbia of Philadelphia that if I start methadone on my patients inpatient, there's not a lot of facilities that are going to take them. So we ran into that problem a lot. So we need to relook at how we're doing this and these patients that are coming in for another medical condition. 
So what are we going to do with this, our, our girl here? She's pregnant. She wants to get off her buprenorphine naloxone. So substance use disorder and pregnancy, there's a lot of it, right? You see a lot of people coming in that are heroin users, and they want to be able to get off their, medica- their, yeah, their medication, their uh, opioid of abuse because they're worried about their baby. So it, you often can lead to injury to the fetus, right, by continuing the substance. You, um, a lot of our patients have risky behaviors that are pregnant and use substances, right? So that's another thing you have to take into consideration. And other common issues with pregnant patients with substance use disorder is like everybody else. They have comorbid psychiatric conditions, poor adherence to care. They may not have a lot of resources. They don't have a lot of good eating habits. They may be malnourished. So we really have to try to figure out how we can manage this patient, get them off their substance of abuse, and allow them to have a valuable pregnancy. So they actually recommend putting a patient on medication-assisted therapy for pregnancy versus just taking them off their opioid and managing withdrawal symptoms because there's less of a risk of relapse. The medication-assisted therapy patients often will continue with treatment, especially going for, um, pre, like, you know, pre, what, am I, what am I thinking? <laughs> Sorry, the prepartum care. I've never been pregnant. I'm 58. I don't know what all that stuff is. But anyway, so <laughs> we may need, again, analgesia, additional analgesia if they're actually having their baby at that point. And medical supervised withdrawal is not recommended. Like I said, it's more of a risk for the patient. It's a risk for the baby, right? You don't want to do something, put all that stress on the baby. And you do have to watch out for neonatal abstinence syndrome in all of these patients. So the treatment of our user. We're often, like I said, motivated to change these behaviors. So we're going to screen them for opioid use disorder. We're going to screen them throughout their pregnancy. You may be able to treat those patients, as I said, in the hospital before the 72-hour rule, as for the others that just come in for overdose. And opioid agonist treatment is the standard of care. You just have to choose now, what do you want to use, buprenorphine or methadone? If this is a health emergency, it could be possible deleterious effects to the fetus. You can harm the baby. And they did do some trials looking at this and um, looking at outcomes in these buprenorphine maintenance uh, patients. They looked at a lot of the effects on this, and they did an additional 44 non-randomized studies that looked at pregnancy in these patients. The retention rates were similar in both buprenorphine and methadone patients. Dose increases of both of these drugs are going to be needed in the postpartum period, similar to a surgical period, right? You have additional pain. This is their baseline. This baseline medication isn't going to work for that additional pain. We have no greater risk or possibly less risk to the fetus compared to methadone. Okay, methadone has a lot of issues with it. There's less suppression of the heart rate because there's less respiratory depression with buprenorphine versus methadone. And the intrauterine growth restriction, they don't really know if it's much different. Neonatal abstinence, though, is about similar in both groups, about 50% in the methadone group, about 50% in the buprenorphine group. So that's something we have to be able to look out for and we have to be able to treat that baby. So in a pregnant patient, you're trying, as in any other patient that has pain control, to use other agents besides opioids. You have to anticipate larger needs of opioids because we need to overcome those effects of the partial agonist, okay? 
we don't have really good evidence-based guidelines at all. There's not a lot of evidence on using buprenorphine on whether to continue it, whether to stop it. In our institution, we stop it, our pain management stop it, but they don't really monitor those patients. So it's kind of, if they're in there for more than three days, um, there may be some you know, risk there, okay? We have to really evaluate our pregnant patients because they may not tell you about their substance use disorder, and that's something that really can harm the baby. And we do need a lot more additional research in a lot of these areas for acute pain management in someone. And I think because of the increased use of buprenorphine, and if we actually can get insurance companies to pay for buprenorphine therapy, that I think we're going to see a lot more and we're going to run into some of these problems. Similar, I think, with Vivitrol, with the uh, naltrexone, what do you do with those patients that come in in acute pain? That's another interesting, that's in their system for the whole month. The second half of the month, I understand, is a little bit less. You might get some pain control, but that's going to be very tough for some patients if they you know, need opioids at some point and you have that in your system for a month. References? Questions? Anybody have any questions? Yes? No, it doesn't have any indication in any, preg- in any type of pain disorders anyway. Yeah, so I do not believe so. Do you know? No. Right. As far as I know, but I'll yeah. find out on that. Okay. So what I would do is see what dose of the buprenorphine they're on. Try to figure out a morphine equivalent based on the equivalency data that's out there. I'd probably use somewhere in the middle. And then convert it to fentanyl and try to use that dose. It's going to be more than your normal dose. It's not going to be 10 or 20. So I think it's going to be a lot of that art of pain management because we don't have great equivalents of buprenorphine at this point. So it may be in an institution that started conservatively at 25. Then maybe you go up based on how it's working with the patient. And you really have to look at the individualization of the patient because somebody on a butrans patch is going to be much different than somebody who's on Suboxone. Okay, so I think that the fentanyl dose on the Suboxone patient is going to be much higher, if that I, helps. Yeah, I usually start at, like, the opiate-tolerant dose because I don't actually know what they're going to need. Um, so I'm not going to give them an opiate-naive dose. You know, I'm not going to give them 12 mics or something, but an opiate-tolerant dose. And since fentanyl acts so quickly, you're going to know with it quickly whether or not that dose is, is effective, and then I'm going to, you know, go up 50 to 100% until I find the dose that works, and then I'm, I'm in a good place. So I usually just recommend going with an opioid-tolerant dose and then doing that ART thing where you, you increase it until you find the effective dose. Do you start with a particular dose for opioid tolerance, or is it more individualized? Usually, I'll say, you know, for fentanyl, I'm going to start with probably, if it's a younger, healthier person and, and naive, I'm going to go with probably with 25, we're talking about acute pain. And then if you're going um, with someone who's tolerant, I'll probably start with 50. That's probably where I would start. Yes. So the question is, if we look at our Suboxone doses, is there any break point where another pure mu opioid isn't going to work? And I think that could be individualized also. 
as we have, many of us have different concentrations of mu receptors, the best thing we can do is start with a lipophilic strong opioid that will help with the, um, the, uh, stint, the affinity for that receptor. Tanya, do you have any additional information on that? No, I mean, I think it, it is very much individualized. I do think the higher doses are much less likely to be effective. So if someone is on 32 milligrams, I'm, I'm going to think we need to at least either lower that or stop that. Um, but at the lower doses, I'd be more willing to try, so 8 milligrams, to try and override that. And if we're really struggling, then you might think to take it off or stop it. Yes. I would not. So usually Q2C prolongation is with higher doses and with different, yeah, with more like an IV form. Um, I don't know the actual answer, but if I had to think about the answer, it would be that it's consistent and it's constant and there's no break. So usually with anything, like with long-acting versus infusion opioids, you kind of get a break in the dosing and it, it, that's what your body needs, but because it's consistent, I would think that that's the problem, but I don't, and we can look into exactly what the answer is. Right, because my understanding is buprenorphine has, at the lower doses that we're using, have much less QTC mm -hmm. prolongation than at higher doses, and the doses that we use are much less than the methadone, methadone issues with QTC prolongation. But if you give us your email, we'll check into that and let you know. Right. right. But don't forget, with the Butrans, it's also your bioavailability. So are you, you have more bioavailability with the transdermal patch than with the sunlegal. Because it's so lipophilic. Right, because it's so lipophilic. So that's another thing you have to look at, the different individual dosage forms, and what is the equivalence between those dosage forms. Because just because the Suboxone's in milligrams and the Butrans is in micrograms doesn't mean that it's that much less potent based on the bioavailability of the drug. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for coming out on the last yeah, day. Thanks Woo! so much. Everybody safe <laughs> travels home. <laughs>